Stupid risks are what make life worth living. Hello, you are listening to the podcast, So There I Was, which is how all great aviation stories start. This is episode number 26. Keep an eye out for me with Fatty. You're so it mean. Is, <laughs> it's going to air on the 247th birthday of our beloved United States Marine Corps. God bless you. Simplify. Everybody sit at attention while listening to this episode. <laughs> and happy birthday to all you Marines out there. Happy birthday, Marines. Fatty, uh, Fatty was another inspirational interview. I knew it would be because I, I know his story personally. He uh, has a great aviation story, just like most of our aviators that we interview got the aviation bug when he was very young. He got to live his dream and then... Um, yeah, he didn't take the traditional path either. He was a he was enlisted guardsman, right? In, yeah. in your unit, as I recall. I know he started in the uh, in the oh, F fifteen right. unit on the that's other right. side of the state, and they were and, and they were bracking him uh, yeah. base realignment and closure. Yeah, and they were getting he got ready. hired to be a pilot in that unit, and while whilst he was in flight school, they were bracked. Yeah, but if that wouldn't happen, I never would have met him. Oh, that's true. But what a great story. Well, he he sounded like quite the character, including uh, sleeping you roofies over in Afghanistan, as I recall. Yeah, that's a that's a that's a, that actually happened. <laughs> I lost about eight hours of my I lost about eight hours of my life. Does your backside hurt when you wake up in the morning, or <laughs> it might have burned a little bit? I don't remember. Exactly. Oh boy! Just kidding, folks. Just yeah. kidding. <laughs> it's a good story. There you go. He's got a great story, and. Uh, I think I, yeah, I don't want to do any spoiler on that one, except that it was an incredible challenge overcome to include getting to fly someone special on his crew. That's right. That was kind of neat. Yeah. So I, I don't know what else to say because I, here's the thing. I, if we if we go into it, we're going to wind up with a spoiler. Um, sit back, relax, make sure you're not sitting on the injection handle. Don't sit on the injection handle, darn it. Uh, you're going to need that thing. <laughs> Episode 26 for the 10th of November. Happy birthday, Marines. Happy birthday, Marines. And I lost count of who's one and who's three. It's nothing new. It happens every time. Over Victor, two's blind. So there I was. That's how every great aviation tale begins. Repeat here in New Hampshire tonight, joined by my co-host, Fig. Hello, and I'm in, uh, well, Kansas City, basically. Kearney, Missouri. Yeah. And we have with us tonight, Fatty. Hello, Fatty. How you doing, Fig? <laughs> well, welcome aboard. Glad to have you. Glad Thanks, Repeat. Glad to be here. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, Fig tells me you flew an airplane once. How'd you get into that? Well, um, so I uh, grew up in an aviation family. My, uh, my father flew uh, attack helicopters for the Army, and uh, my grandfather flew general aviation, but uh, worked for Douglas and then McDonnell Douglas, and then uh, retired out of there as a flight test engineer. So, uh, family's been in aviation, got my first flight in a fixed wing aircraft probably when I was about six okay. a little Cessna <clears throat> and nice. uh who, who took you my dad my dad took me in uh in Texas it was down in Conroe Texas and then uh from there 
uh, we had a couple, probably a couple year gap uh, of flying uh, from there. But then when we moved out to uh, Baltimore, Maryland, went did quite a bit of flying out there. Flew. I remember it's it's probably what actually got me hooked on flying. Um, I was still small enough, and I had to sit on a phone book for those that know what those are nowadays um, <laughs> to see over the dash. Right. And uh, so we went flying over Chesapeake Bay, and I remember looking outside. I started getting real worried. And I asked my dad what was going on, and he said, "Well, nothing. We're we're landing." And I said, "Well, I don't understand how we're landing. All I see is water and and grass." And he goes, "I know. We're landing. We're landing on a grass strip. A uh, pretty cool little island out there in Chesapeake Bay. It had a um, seafood restaurant on it. But you landed in the grass strip, parked the airplane, and walked in the restaurant. So pretty cool. Well, I think that's cool. kind of what got me hooked." On, on flying that's awesome that's, i gotta go there yeah. <laughs> is it still there as far as i know it is yeah okay yeah it's a pretty cool little restaurant they i remember the all the shells they shuck they they throw them outside and that's their actual like uh, instead of using mulch that's what they used for their landscape <laughs> yeah i've seen that operation before is the shells so it was, it was pretty cool but uh awesome you know and my there, wife yells at me when i do that in the backyard <laughs> yeah i could i could see the same thing <laughs> Uh, from there, you know, I've, uh, during high school, uh, I, I really wanted to fly. I actually had a couple articles. I was, uh, and in St. Louis at Fort Zumo, the, uh, they had this, uh, they had this program. Basically it was like student spotlight. I was that at one time and they said, Hey, you know, what's, what's your future? And I said, I want to fly when I leave Zumo. So, um, it was kind of cool because, you know, as a 16 year old, 17 year old kid, you don't know really what you're going to do you know right. I, i've wanted to fly but i've always wanted to fly but except um, pilots most pilots are yeah that's true i got told by my guidance counselor i need to keep my options open or i was going to be disappointed in my in myself <laughs> and so uh, my dad backed me up on that told me uh you know what if he wants to fly let him fly that's what he's going to do because they said give me three options i said okay uh airplanes helicopters and jets you know there you <laughs> so go. that was my three options it was flying Nice. But, uh, That's awesome. But it's pretty pretty neat, actually, because after that article went out, I had guys I'd never met that were pilots. They wrote me. Actually, you know, again, this is before email and everything else, but they actually wrote me letters to my house, which is kind of scary how they found that address out. But um, <laughs> telling me, hey, if I'm going to be serious about flying, these are some advice to give me to do that. But uh, I started pumping gas at an FBO um, at 17. And then what airport <clears throat> uh, Spirit of St. Louis. Okay. Spirit of St. Louis, started pumping gas. Uh, it was kind of a cool deal. I worked for this this company who's no longer, it was called Thunder Aviation. And I actually worked a deal out, out with them where um, I didn't get money. I got credit to to go on my account to fly. So um, That's better than money. You can't is. get a tax for that. That's that's why it was a good deal. <laughs> you know, I was a free employee to them, but I got to go fly. Um, so I did that for a while. And then I met some guys that ended up, um, you know, taking care of their airplanes, doing some washes and stuff on the side that they let me fly their airplanes. So got into that. And then uh, when I was 17, joined the Air National Guard, the Missouri Air Guard, and uh, signed up as a F-15 crew chief. And uh, so, you know, I was hooked in aviation. I knew I wanted to fly, uh, but I knew I needed to go to college. And it was either take a loan and pay my dad back or because uh, he told me he's not going to pay for it because all my buddies washed or not washed out, but they failed out of school. So he said, Hey, I'll give you a loan, but you got to pay me back. 
or uh, or join the guard to have them pay for it. So I did that. And uh, actually, you guys have interviewed uh, one of your other podcasts, uh, the guy uh, that hired me. From father. Father. Oh, father. Father. Okay. father is, yeah. yeah. Father Mike. He's, yeah. Father Mike. He was, he's the guy who hired me uh, to go to pilot training. So was he good. at the time, Fatty? Was he the uh, squadron commander? He was the squadron commander at the time. Oh, that's awesome. Was, hey, I got to I got to back up and ask you something. Did okay. you have uh, did you get your private pilot's license? I did. What how old were you? Um yeah, so I, I let myself down. I thought I was gonna get it at 17. Cameron? I was two hours short at 17 when I went to basic training. So I got it when I was yeah, 18 I years old. As soon okay. as I got back as soon as I got back from basic training, I finished it. All right. So uh, but started logging okay. time when I was 16. Is, uh, nice. is when I started okay. logging it. It, well, so how much how much time did you have when you got hired by the guard? I had about four hundred, I think about four hundred and twenty hours. And okay. honestly, uh, you know, my my wife will make fun of me about it, but um, it was a lot of just either taking my buddies out or or you know that was that was back in the day. Oh know, yeah, when I was dating, I say, hey, you know, you want to go on a flight? So I wasn't making any money. During chicks any dig it, yeah, hours. but it chicks was, dig it when you take them flying. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, except for in Kentucky. Uh, we flew to Murray, Kentucky, flew an airplane there and we're, we're at the bar and I remember, Hey, you know, you want to go flying tomorrow, trying to pick up on these girls. And, you know, uh, they're like, no, but do you have a boat? And I was like, <laughs> I was like I gotta, anybody can have a boat. I got a plane. <laughs> I know. So apparently hell? Murray, Kentucky college girls did not think, uh, flying airplanes was cool. They, they no. if you had a boat, you're okay. They didn't, they didn't get it, man. Hey, hey, repeat. How many, how many hours, uh, how many hours did you have before you went to flight school? Uh, with Marine Corps flight school. Yeah. You asked hard questions just because it was so damn long ago. (laughs) I want to say, um, I, I think I was probably between, it's a wide number between 200 and 400. Okay. You know, somewhere in there. I got, I I know I, I finished college with about 200. 220, something like that. I, I had my instrument. I had my private instrument, and that was it. Yeah, we, we were all about the same. I, I actually had my commercial and instrument, um, and I had, I don't know, 350, maybe maybe 400 hours total yeah. tops. All right, awesome. So the guard hired you to be a pilot in the F-15 unit, uh, air guard unit over in St. Louis, correct? Yep. I got uh, So I had my interview in 2006. Uh, and got hired um, right as the BRAC list came out, the base realignment closure list. Um, <clears throat> so uh, I was I was the person selected, and my brother uh, uh, he he's a uh, flies for or he's a uh, dirty is what his call sign is. He flies F-16s now, but he was the first alternate, and they were really trying to send us both. The, you know that was kind of the they knew we were getting BRAC. They thought it'd be cool to send both brothers we were both crew chiefs out there oh nice to, uh, to fly and uh, at the time we didn't have a follow-on assignment when we first got bracked and i got hired we were going to go to beat uh, we were going to go we thought we were going to follow the, the f-15 uh up to montana but that is not the case we ended up getting b-2s so um so with that i went to uh shepherd air force base to uh to NJEP, which is the euro nato joint jet uh pilot training and uh, <clears throat> I was one of the last classes to fly the T-37 for the Air Force. So I flew okay. a tweet. And then uh, 
after I got done with the T37, that's we knew that the the options were to be a uh, go to B2s or see if St. Joe would hire me. There was no option to follow the F15 anymore. I was, you know, I was probably middle middle of my class. It wasn't like I was a superstar in pilot training. Um, if I would have been, maybe there was a chance, but I don't think there really was. Um, so basically, Missouri said, "Hey, you're gonna you're gonna fly here, but you gotta you gotta figure out what you're gonna do." So I ended up uh, switching bases, pilot training, went down to uh, flew with the Navy um, down in Corpus and flew um, TC-12s, which is a Kinger 200. Okay. So, and, so uh, is this uh, before or after you had confirmation that you were going to come to St. Joe? So no, this is, this is uh, before. So basically yeah, okay. uh, I got, I got called um, by uh, one of the pilots at St. Louis and he had a friend who worked in St. Joe. Uh, this was Moss man of steel. Uh, was yeah. his call sign out of St. Louis. And he goes, Hey, uh, you know, I got a buddy out of St. Joe. And if you want to fly C-130s, he goes, I think it's the way to go. And then talking to a lot of those guys out there, <clears throat> they all said, Hey, if you're, if your goal is to go to the airlines, then you should fly something that you're going to get a lot of time fast. And so they said the Herc is, is probably the way to go out in St. Joe. So uh, I said, switched, switched out to uh, Corpus to Navy training and, What's kind of funny is the first thing you do when you go in process there, they have a list of airplanes and they, you walk up to them and they're like, what airplane do you want to fly? And I was like, Oh, what do you got? You know? <laughs> and so the, uh, the first thing they didn't tell me what they got. So the first thing I said, well, I'll fly the T-45, you know, why not? Right. <laughs> Even though right. I went down there to learn how to fly props, you know, yeah. <laughs> but I was, well, if you're going to ask me what Navy trainer I want to fly, I want to fly a T-45. And, uh, they're like, no, no, no. They, we have we have two different uh, prop airplanes. We have a, a TC-12 and a, and a T-44. And so the difference was a King Air 200 versus the King Air uh, 90. So, so which okay. one did you pick? I picked the 200, even though I had no clue. You know, I, I at that time in my career, in my life, I thought props were for boats. Two, 200's, and, uh, 200's better than 90 any day, right? Well, they oh, said yeah. uh, the reason I picked the 200, honestly, they, they told me that the 90 had glass cockpit, which, again, I didn't know what that was. I came from a T-37 and a Cessna, so glass to me didn't mean anything at that time. Um, but they told me that the TC-12, the Kinger 200, because it's a military version, had a type rating that went with it. And I was like, well, that could probably help me get a job someday. So that's that's why I went with uh, the C-12. That was a smart choice. Yeah. 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 I've actually flown. It's kind of funny. I've flown uh, in the civilian sector. I've flown uh, King or 200s now, probably because I had that type rating. Even though you don't need it, you don't need it, but it still was on my resume. Right. You know? In fact, that's the largest airplane that doesn't require type rating, right? 12,500 pounds or less. It hey, is. Man, look at and me citing my reason, FARs, boys. <laughs> yeah. That's pretty impressive. I don't know how, I don't know what wrinkle that came out of. But that was it impressive. Was, it was good. Yeah. The only reason why it requires it or that it was allowed to get it for the um, Navy is because it has beefed up gear. And actually like when the gears were tracked it up, the, the wheels still stick below the gear doors were actually cut out. And so you could actually have a gear up landing and land on the landing gear and be able to stop. No problem. Yeah. So, wow. Okay. Like yeah. yeah. No, what nose wheel, but, but means. All right, let's go back. I want to, I want to go back to your T-37 flying days at Shepard. All right, I spent a I spent a year at Shepherd one weekend. <laughs> <laughs> we did a hurricane evacuation. Went up there out of Corpus, uh, and uh, 
man, that was a long weekend with nothing to do. <laughs> oh. What's that? Oh, Hervac, you guys heard back yeah. the airplanes? Yeah. yeah. I actually liked, I liked Shepard. I was there. I was there when I was 18 years old for crew chief training, which I thought wasn't that great because, you know, I was a brand new airman, but uh, then I went back over 21 and it was not a bad place to be. Oh, there you go. And you, were, and you were single at the time. Uh, I was single the first time. The second time Sing, I had, I you... had my, I had my wife. Uh, we weren't married yet, but we had, I had my wife. Okay. Uh, so I want to, I want to ask you a question about the T-37. We, we, uh, you are, I think, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, repeat, but fatty is the number three non-gold winger we've had on the show. Yeah, I think so. This would be there's father and double L. Oh, and, uh, and Jedi. So four, oh, number Jedi. four. Okay. So you're a number four guy. Okay. So, uh, the T-37, uh, to tell us your fondest memory, scariest memory, most comedic <laughs> memory of the T-37. Or were you smart enough to give one back to the Air Force? Yeah, did, um, did you I, ever... actually, I love the airplane. I, I love it. Back then, you know, um, Air Force training, since I got to do a little bit of portion of, of Navy, naval training, Air Force training was horrible. It was, horrible. <laughs> it, was it was literally just, it was a haze the whole time. They didn't care about teaching you how to fly. They cared about hazing you to the point where you didn't stress out. Um, but T-37. Um, so, you know, they, the nickname is the, the thousand pound dog whistle. Um, it was loud. But I'll tell you, the, the first time I went out there, and, and, and maybe you guys felt the same, maybe you didn't, but prior to going to, to military pilot training, I thought I was a great pilot. Like I was, I thought I was awesome. Right. And yeah, well, uh, yeah. <clears throat> first Hello. day, you know, doing academics, everything else, I'm realizing, man, there's a lot of stuff I don't know about flying. But that first day I strapped on the parachute because you had to literally strap on a, a parachute. It wasn't just the harness. It wasn't built in the seat. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and you go in that jet and I can remember flipping all these switches. I was like, Oh man, this is a lot harder to turn a key. Right. And then, the crew chief walks up as I'm trying to start the engine. The crew chief walks up and he starts shaking the airplane, like literally pushing this airplane, shaking it like you would do to mess with your buddies in their car. And I, <laughs> I didn't know what the heck he was doing. Well, apparently that, that the starters like that. <laughs> the igniters like that in the T-37. You, jost, you what it was it you jostled the fuel around they, in the burner can i don't, to get I don't, the I don't know exactly oh. what it was but they would shake the airplane every single time you started that aircraft right oh, oh, okay. and that's so the it, first time i've ever heard that that's awesome. it's it nice. starts up and it's it's a jet you know you hear that jet sound and it's a high pitch jet but that's still kind of kind of cool but you know you're still first flight you're super nervous it's your dollar ride and i think i think father went over what the dollar ride was which you know your first air force airplane uh ride and, uh, but I remember getting to the end of the runway and, you know, from start to holding short of that runway, it, it was, it was, it was a cluster, you know, I didn't, yeah. everything that I thought I remembered, I didn't remember anything. Right. And so I just remember <laughs> thinking, oh man, this instructor is going to bust me from just taxing. But all of that thought went away. As soon as I got cleared to take off, I went in the runway and I pushed those throttles forward and it sounded like a jet. It was awesome. Uh, I remember releasing the brakes and, and you got to think about comparing it to a Cessna and maybe a little bit high performance. Right, with all it, the vibration and yep. everything, right? There was no vibration in that. Nope. It was, it was awesome. You know, That's you push it up. It sounded like that roar of those, in, those little engines, they stopped whistling whenever the power pushed up. 
Okay. And it, it started heck hauling butt down the runway. And uh, I remember, you know, taking off the first time and thinking, holy crap, I'm flying a jet. <laughs> and, uh, and then I realized that I was not a good pilot. It's <laughs> uh, happened a little faster. <laughs> yeah, everything was happening <laughs> way too fast. Almost overspeeded my gear the first flight. Uh, we get out to the area. And, you know, it's just, it's basically, it's a demo. It's not even a demo, dude. It's almost just watching your instructor fly it. But you got to fly a little bit. But it was just one of the coolest experiences I remember thinking, holy cow, well, what am I doing? This is, I am, I am, uh, I'm in a real airplane. And for the first time in my life, I was getting paid to fly, which was awesome. Right. right. Yeah. So, well, uh, yeah. So that's, that's the very first memory I had of, of the T-37. And, you know, the second one. Uh, so it had really long spool up time for the engines. Uh, we had a uh, attenuator. I don't know if anybody talked about that. We had a, a attenuator on it. So basically <clears throat> they had these little, almost like reversers, like on a normal jet uh, that would come out. If you had, if you had the throttles between a certain range and the speed brake on um, and you were under, I think 40% RPM or something like that, or in one, I can't remember exactly, but they would have these attenuators come out so you could keep your, your thrust up um, and go slow. Because if you were, if you didn't have your speed brake out and those attenuators out and you were back at idle to try to land and had to go around, it was like a, like a 19 second spool up time. So you were never going to go around. You were just going to, you're going to hit the ground. See, right. Well, that's the thing that has killed a lot of new jet pilots, right. That have flown a lot of props that uh, a jet engine takes a lot longer to spool up. So you need to not get, not get behind. Uh, it killed a famous baseball player, Thurman Munson, in assessing the citation. He was, he got low and slow and pushed the throttles up, but it was way too late. Hit the ground before. Yep. Before it reacted. Yep. So yeah, that's oh okay. Yeah, we used to do that. We flew with the boards out. Uh, was it in the A four or the T two? Do you remember Fig? both, man? Boards out, gear down. Yeah. You know, you so way you up the on the throttle. Yeah, so you the kept time. the power up, and it was ready to rock and roll. All you had to do was pull your boards in when you hit hit mill power to go around, yeah. Okay. Yep. And I, I remember one time I realized why you do all that. I forgot to put the boards out. And, man, I pushed the power up to just add a little power and realized it was not happening. And so I threw it in the, in the mill power. It still was probably the hardest landing I've ever had in my life. It I'm surprised that it didn't count as a crash. It was it was pretty bad. It scared me. Scared my instructor. After hold that, we decided. A hold on a second. I I've yeah, sat through a couple up. of your landings, so I don't, I don't know if that's the hardest. Well, I said probably, probably. So. Uh, well, on yeah. Well, in the Air Force, I'm, anyway. I'm busting your balls, bro. I'm busting your balls. No, it's it's good, but yeah, the uh, but after that, then I realized, you know, uh, there's. So you never you never had your hand on the handle. When you're flying T-37s, you never thought this is it. I'm giving it back. No, no, honestly. I mean, we had, we had two engines and it, it was a pretty stable airplane. Uh, it was, it was a lot of fun. Like I think back now, if, if I could go back now and fly it, like I think it would have been a great sunsetting tour in the air force to go back and fly the T-37. Number one, uh, I think it'd be way better to do it sunset tour compared to a FAPE, a first assignment uh, instructor pilot, because, um, you know, you, you guys know how it was the difference between a, 
you know, zero and a hundred hours in the military was huge. And then between 100 and 200 hours was huge. But then when you're looking at 200 to 500 or 200 to a thousand, I mean, you're a totally different aviator. And so you're having like, you know, brand new instructor pilots go at 200 to 250 hours. It's, it's crazy to me. Yeah. That's silly. Uh, yeah. They know their procedures. They do. They do, <laughs> but they don't have the experiences. No, right. You know, and I, I think about that is there's a lot of things that have happened in an airplane that, I've used other experiences to be like, okay, what should I do? Um, so I don't know, but the airplane was just, it was a blast to fly. Um, but you know, right. I, I would say one thing flying that airplane has taught me how to fly instruments on needles only, which is good. Okay. What so do you, mean so you went from uh, Air force pilot training to Naval pilot training. Yeah. And if you could sum it up in, in is in a in a few bullet points what was the biggest philosophical difference between air force pilot training and uh, naval aviation pilot training so the naval pilot training they wanted to teach you how to fly they want to waste their money and so they were there to teach you they told you what they expected from you and if you did that you were good to go Uh, in the air force it was all a game it was a big haze um, they, they taught you, but it, that was not their main goal. At least that's how I feel because okay. I was stressed out the whole time in air force training. And when I went to, when I went to Naval flight training, I learned everything I needed to, but I was on the, I was on my boat every day by noon, well, okay. <laughs> every day. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So when, when did you get, uh, so you got, when you got your wings, you were in Corpus, right? I was, I got my wings, uh, June 24th. Fifth, I believe, uh, of 2009. It was the day that uh, Michael Jackson died. Ah. That's that's, uh, and I think and it's who the 25th. else? Oh, hang on. I'm sorry. I got to jump in with trivia. Who else died that day? Oh. <laughs> Wait a minute. Yeah. Uh, the same day as as Michael Jackson? Yeah. Yeah. Wait a minute. Is this a? If you're a teenage boy in the if you're a teenage boy in the 70s, you'll know. Farrah Fawcett. There you go, brother. Oh. Yeah. That's right. That was it. All right. Sorry for that diversion. <laughs> on my wall. So it's, it's either the 25th or the 26th. I have a plaque my brother gave me for, for getting my wings, but it has the wrong date. So I, <laughs> it's one of those two days. It's either the 25th or 26th, but yeah. I know it's the day. That it was over a couple days. <laughs> yeah. So, um, but uh, got my wings. Uh, kind of cool. Got got my uh, my wings with the Navy. Um, it was It was really a lot of fun. I enjoyed it. Uh, a lot all right so so they gave you uh so at that point you how tell us the process for you getting into the our unit there in st joe because i i just remembered one time at drill you know you were standing there in the ready room and (laughs) or in the heritage room and i'm like who you know who who the hell are you well it wasn't the heritage i built the heritage room all right, so what it was a, I don't know what it was back then. It was the pilot section. Yeah, I don't the pilot know. section. Yeah. So, um, so got my wings and I went back to St. Louis. Uh, we didn't have any airplanes at that time. Um, I don't believe we had. I think we got rid of our last one, and so basically they were still working on transitioning to the B two. And uh, what they what they did was they set me up. Moss set me up with the interview. Uh, in St. Joe and I can remember it clear as day because um, it was with uh, ended up having my interview with the ninja 
And yeah. uh, so I showed up on uh, July drill. July 2006? Two, nope, it was 2009. So oh, sorry, July up, 2009. Uh, yeah, it was the weekend of July 12th. And the reason I remember that is because of my birthday. So it was July 11th was the Saturday. And I showed up there, and I didn't know any of these guys. But, you know, I showed up wearing all my, my St. Louis fighter pilot uh, right. patches, I, you know. I kind of remember. And, and everybody was like, who the hell is this guy? Uh, and I didn't know. Nobody knew I wasn't supposed to be there. So I thought everybody was expecting me. So I just walk in thinking, okay, hey, how are you guys doing? I'm here to talk and, you know, get hired here. Um, well, that's not the way they did it or they do it at St. Joe now. So anyway, <laughs> I walk in and I'm like, hey. Uh, I'm fatty and, you know, looking uh, to find, I can't remember who I was supposed to see, but uh, either way. Where's the rush um, chairman? <laughs> yeah. So I can't remember who it was, but the issue was the guy that Moss set this up with uh, was deployed and he didn't tell anybody at the squadron that I was going to be coming in for an interview in, in this July drill. So nobody there knew who the heck I was and why I was there. Yeah, so, at that uh, time, at that time, we were doing <laughs> rotations over to Afghanistan. Uh, repeat, okay. And so, part part of the squadron was gone. Part of the squadron was there because I I went there. I went. I rotated out in August of that year. So yeah, I I get it. <clears throat> so yeah, so I get there like like who are you and why are you here? You know. So I tell them my story. I'm like, hey, I'm a Missouri Guard Airman. Got my wings. I'm looking for a home. I would like to fly Hercs, not go to the B two, and so. Uh, met a couple guys there, ended up, uh, you know, getting, uh, having a few cocktails with those guys and spilling my guts and thinking that night, eh, maybe I shouldn't have spilled my guts, but you know, I was me. I, there was no secret. I was, my mouth shut. <laughs> yeah, I didn't. I just, I was my total self. So, uh, so the next day uh, they put a board together and like I said, um, the ninja was on there. He was uh, not the squadron commander, but he was on the hiring or he was on the hiring board at the time. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I had the interview and he shook my hand and said, Hey, you know, welcome, welcome to the 139th airlift wing. Uh, we'll be talking and soon we'll get you some little rock dates. Go to see my 30 school. And I nice. was like, awesome. You know? And I said, Hey, you know, thanks. This is, this is the best birthday present I can ask for. And he goes, Oh yeah, it's your birthday. And I said, yeah. So July 12th, my birthday. He goes, well, Hey, it's mine too. So never forget that. So we shared the same birthday, got hired at the, uh, to fly steam 30s on my birthday so pretty pretty cool so uh when did you go to c-130 school just dates um it would have been it would have been later that month like uh wow end of august like i mean end of july it was either july or august of 09 yeah it was real quick okay it was super quick um and then i got back in december and i was home for a month got all my end processing done but then i had to go to uh uh, water or yeah, water survival or land survival, not water, land survival still. So I started so actually cool. flying with the squadron in like February or March, like done with everything, all my training. And that of was 2010 of 10. Yeah. So I had a flashback, you know, we're, we're leading into the fall of 2010 and we, we deployed to Afghanistan again in that, that time frame. Fatty and I both deployed. We were not on the same flying crew. We had hard crews then. Okay. We were flying out of Bagram. And uh, I I think Fatty needs to tell the story of how he roofied a senior officer on that particular deployment. You know I'm not retired yet, right? 
so was she cute? It was a no. She she you know, was me. Oh yeah. boy. <laughs> no, she wasn't. <laughs> I like your pronouns, you know, uh, Vic. <laughs> I, I feel like uh, I know. So, I know. You know. Nobody loves going to war except for we're all kind of brainwashed, and that's what we're supposed to do. So we love going to war. Um, but it was. It's. I think for as far as an aviator goes, I mean, you can't ask for any better kind of situation than that. You know, you get back at the beginning of the year, and at the end of the year, you are literally flying in combat. Um, so I was, you know, there's a, still a first lieutenant. I was on a, a good crew, uh, still uh, friends with a lot of those guys, close friends with a lot of those guys now. And, uh, but we were, we were, I don't know if we were, I would say we were probably, probably the party crew. <laughs> we were a party crew, but, but, uh, you know, um, general order number one is you can't drink over in Afghanistan. So you got to find other ways to keep busy. So, um, all I know, and I'm not saying it was me, I'm just saying I know that a senior officer might have been in our hooch. I will say it was in our hooch. Okay. And, uh, and it Christmas was like either night. Christmas. Yeah, I think it was, it was Christmas, Christmas night. Christmas. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, you got to make your near beers go a lot further. And, uh, and you know, so we like, we, we sleep. And so we got, we got some, um, we got some sleeping aids and, and maybe, you know, we'd have that with the near beer and that would help nice. it feel like a real beer. Nice. Well, anyway, uh, not me, but somebody else may have asked fig, Hey, you want, you want one of these, these cocktails? And he said, no, well, hmm. that person decided that yes, he didn't do. know what he wanted <laughs> and he wanted one. And so, so they gave him one. And then whenever he was ready for his next one, he got caught giving him his next one. Fig caught him. <laughs> and all I know is that uh, hypothetically, yeah. I thought I was going to get my butt kicked. You know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, oh. so the next couple of days were pretty rough for me because I thought I had uh, really done something that I was never going to get forgiven for. And, and so, and nice. And to go back on this, it's, Fig and I got pretty close real quick because we both enjoy the lake. And so uh, uh, I don't know. I don't even know if you were my flight commander at the time yet, but at, at this point, I know we spent a lot of time out in the lake. So I thought, oh man, I really screwed up and I lost a friend. <laughs> but the answer was, okay. yes, I was your flight commander. Okay. And, and yes, I was plotting on different ways. I was going to disassemble your body in <laughs> Afghanistan and throw it in the burn pit one piece at a time. And no one was ever going to know where you went. Yeah. But it all worked out. All, all right. worked out. Hey, do you have any? You were the good... squadron commander at the time. No, no, I okay. was his. Not I was the A flight commander. Okay. Um, <laughs> so it was like if you if our, if you split the the squadron officers up into three squads, I was the A, the number one squad. Gotcha. HMFIC. The, the deck <laughs> commander. Air Force does things a little yeah. different. Uh, uh. Hey, so so that that Afghanistan deployment that we were doing a lot of flying. Do you do you have any um, any recollections of missions or? Uh, uh, <clears throat> I do. Actually, events. I, I have I have one that I flew quite a bit. I know you flew at one time. I actually dropped. You didn't. But uh, so we it, back in in 2010, we were doing a lot of airdrops in Afghanistan. It was awesome. It was probably the best flying you can get in a Herc. 
that there was. Um, hey, tell tell everybody why we were doing airdrops. Uh, talk about supporting the guys, the troops on the ground. Or what, well, what it's mean? because the ro- nobody could drive on the shitty yeah, roads yeah. because so, uh, they were all, <clears throat> you know, they'd get bombed. All the IEDs and everything else yeah. on the roads. So, so basically what they would do is they had all these, uh, the Army and Marine guys, they would be out in forward operating bases, small bases. And, and they would be, they were the guys in, in, in the, you know, in the crap, you know, we were Air Force guys. We're living on an Air Force base. We're, we're where they came for, for R&R, which uh, is to relax and, and recovery. Cool. But uh, the, uh, so we would bring them supplies, whether it's ammunition or food or water, and we would drop it to all these forward operating bases. And uh, there was one that was <clears throat> a pretty difficult airdrop. The, the drop zone was called Xander. And uh, it was really awesome. Like, I don't know how to explain it, except for it is beautiful and awesome. And it's in Afghanistan. You wouldn't think that, but it's in a river valley. It's in the Gall Valley. Yep. And it's just, it's along, it's along the river and surrounded by high train on both sides. And you have to fly in between the train and you get, you almost get lost in how beautiful it is. And uh, so I had done, I think our crew did that drop probably at least six times. Um, a couple times we did it uh, prior that we had, we had a crew get shot, but you know, basically the way we were doing it first is we would come, we'd go and do the airdrop. We'd get half of the bundles out and we'd come back around 20 minutes later and do the other half. And we were like, you know what? Somebody's going to get shot. This is not a smart way to do it. Can we get it all one, one pass? And uh, they're like, Nope, Nope. Can't do that. Well, anyway, a crew after us came in to do that same drop and, on their second pass, they were ready for them and they, they got shot. Um, you know, they were all okay. But but anyway, after that, they're like, well, hey, maybe we should look at trying to fly a little lower and get it all done in one pass. We're like, oh, well, you know, that's kind of what we said. So we went out and did it the next day and it went perfect. It was it was probably the most perfect airdrop I've ever been part of in my life, like better than training airdrops, everything else. But again, we're enjoying the train and just getting lost, how beautiful it was. The drop went off. The, the military guys around the ground got got the stuff they needed and it was it was perfect but uh that brings me to i have dropped there at xander and what about you fig i was gonna drop there one day it was gonna be an emergency airdrop because they hadn't <laughs> been resupplied in a couple of days and uh my my uh my navigator who was going to remain nameless um he uh, lost track of where we were, and uh, I turned the corner. I'd been there the day before riding along just to kind of see what it looked like, and I remember as we turned the last corner around this big piece of terrain, I remember in the back of my mind thinking, this seems like where we should be slowing down, and we're still doing, you know. Well, doors closed. We were going as fast as we could, basically. We turned the corner and, and immediately uh, he started, I, I heard him screaming, not over the ICS, but just, you know, in the cockpit. And I, uh, I could see the drop zone up ahead and he screamed, he started screaming out, you know, drop calls, which you can't do. Uh, and so the, the bottom line is, uh, no, we did not drop. We went <laughs> flying by that drop zone at the speed of heat. And I remember looking down at those guys, those army guys and they were looking, I could see the question marks above their head as we went blowing <laughs> by with the doors closed. Just providing yeah, an air show today, no. gents. <laughs> yeah. There's a flyby of C-130 yeah. carrying yeah. all your shit that you wanted, yeah. that you're not going to get today. 
Okay, so so back up and and uh, un- unpack that a little bit for me. What what all is involved in a drop? You must have all kinds of uh, CG issues, emergency procedures to deal with the fact if you know something gets hung up on on extract. Yeah, so uh, there, there's a bunch of uh, emergency procedures. Depends on what you're going to be dropping. Uh, that day, <clears throat> we're dropping uh, CDS, which is smaller container delivery system. Okay. Um, and if we have we have three different basically three different drops we kind of do. We have that where it's basically like a four by four bundle. Uh, then we have heavy equipment, which is like you see Humvees and small boats, that kind of stuff going out. And then we have personnel that jumps out. Later on, which we do now, we had something called LCLA, which is low cost, low altitude. And I actually have a story about that a little later we'll get to. Uh, the day that Fig was doing it, the day that I did it, dropping CDS to the guys, which is usually, like I said, ammunition, water, MREs, something like that. Hey, and basically, uh, repeat, you slow down and you set a deck angle. Okay. Like you retract the flaps until you get the proper deck angle. And then the loadmaster just cuts a cuts a cord when he sees the green light, and that stuff just rolls out the back, and the parachutes deploy as it falls. Okay. As opposed yep. to a heavy equipment that gets extracted out the back by a by a parachute. Yeah, yep. that was that was the lapes, right? Low altitude parachute extraction. So, yeah, they used well, to do that too. But we do heavy equipment still has an extraction okay. chute. Okay. Um, yeah, so, up at high altitude. So yeah, there's a pretty good CG shift, but go, go ahead and talk about that. Yeah. Daddy. So <clears throat> with uh, you know, it's it's actually something really cool. We got to do a lot in Afghanistan. We we can in the uh, in the slick C130H, we could do 16 uh, CDS bundles. And so when those things start going out the back, you can definitely. It's all about the deck angle, like Fig was saying, uh, keeping that same deck angle. So what you're trying to do is is keeping that deck angle the same as the CG shifting. Cause it's, it's constantly going back cause the stuff in the front's rolling backwards and it's, you're constantly have to push a little bit of forward stick pressure as the CG is rolling back. Okay. But you don't want to push too much that you get, you reduce the deck angle enough that it can't roll out. So it's, it's gotcha. just, a, it's a finesse and you're going slow. And that's one thing that, uh, how slow my, uh, t- t- tell us the speed. Usually 130. If you're heavy, you'd be 140, but usually 130 knots. And, and how far is that above 30, stall speed? About 20 knots? Yeah, you're, you're or, per, or is it a percent? Uh, 10% above exactly stall so. speed? You know, the thing is, with the C-130, uh, with that big straight wing and all oh, those Oh, I bet flaps, it's hard to, yeah. I bet it's hard <laughs> with, to stall. With three, with the uh, power. 13, four 13-foot props, it's really hard to stall. To, yeah, I mean it'll stall, it's, but it really won't stall with the if their powers. Up. Yeah. yeah, and and okay. the thing about the also it's a balloon wing with those props. As soon as you add power, you can get out of a stall. But the thing that's a lot different, especially like uh, and and Fig would know this flying both aircraft, but like uh, a lot of our our jet brothers that flew both airplanes realizes, you know, uh, in a, in a jet, it's very small corrections on the flight controls to get the aircraft to do quite a bit. Well, when you're going that slow, especially in a formation you might be turning the yoke stop to stop to make the airplane to go straight, which, uh, you know, it's just, that's when you're talking about that slow speed, you're not stalling, but you're just, your flight controls don't have a lot of, uh, don't have the authority. Okay. So, yeah. Hey, the first time I flew a C-130, I thought I had a controllability problem. (laughs) And and you did. Just because it took so much, (laughs) took so much movement of the controls to make anything happen. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Well, to divert a little bit on that, then, uh, yeah, I remember going out for my interview for my airline job and they said, Oh, you're going to fly a 747 for your interview. So I went out to the training center in Denver and rented 
uh, two hours of a 747 simulator and went through the profile. And, wow. oh, my God, am I glad I did. It was the best money I ever spent because flying a light tactical jet and then going <laughs> to a heavy jet, the difference <laughs> in control inputs was like, oh, my God. I mean, think I, about it. You know, a, a Harrier fully loaded with all the fuel and bombs it could carry weighs less than what one tank, what one wing tank of fuel holds in a DC-10. So, yeah, <laughs> it just, yeah, yeah. It, it the it's, inputs it's required are magnified a hundredfold. I guess is the way yeah. to say it. It just, it was amazing. Yeah. So okay. Yeah, well, that makes sense. Yeah, you're you're just really honking on the uh, on the flight controls. To, to the slower you get, the more you have to deflect. Yep. So, so but it's it's pretty cool. But like I said, and I could see exactly like whenever we heard that Fig Screw <laughs> just blew by the drop zone, we we knew why. Like I told you, it was probably one of the most beautiful places to fly in Afghanistan, and uh, the terrain was awesome. There was a river there, and you know we were looking outside. We we're sightseeing. We we're like, oh man, that's beautiful. Look at that. Oh, that's so cool. You know, and you don't think about that when you hear Afghanistan. You don't right. You yeah. don't think about that. They and grow so, rocks and sand there, right? Yeah, and so <laughs> it looked like Colorado. It looked like Col- anywhere in Colorado. Nice. Yeah, and, not not like Afghanistan. And we're we're where Fig's crew was at whenever, you know, it's funny because we still joke around uh, what his navigator called was one minute. And, and so that's a one minute warning to the airdrop and the loadmaster in the back of his, uh, he says uh, he's got a one minute country, to what country accent, one minute to what, you know, and it's, it's, it's a joke that we have around now. And whenever everybody retires, it's still going to be around. Um, Cause I had, uh, I had patches <laughs> made for my crew <laughs> That said, one minute to what? Yeah, and we, nice. we wore them for the rest of the deployment because it was that awesome. Yeah, it's it's pretty good. But anyway, that was a, that was a good deployment. Actually, to the to the point at the very end, I tried to stay with with Fig to fly uh, after he'd forgiven me uh, from the uh, roofie incident. I tried to stay and fly with him for a couple extra weeks, but but that didn't work out. Nice. But, uh, so, so that was, uh, so that was 10, 11, that was yep. the fall of 10. That was the over Thanksgiving. We had the holidays and then into 11, something, something happened. Yeah. So, well, July yeah, so that was in 12, but before okay. I get there, I need to probably need to tell you, okay. So everything kind of ties together, like, like everything, um, so doing the airdrops and stuff in 10 led me to talking to some contractor buddies and one of the guys at our unit who was a, a contractor over in Afghanistan. So in 11, uh, I got hired as, uh, as a contractor doing airdrops for um, a company who's no longer in business. It was Evergreen, but they're, they're out. They're gone. I remember seeing their tails all over. Yeah. Yep. But uh the cool thing was we flew Casa 212s, which is a tiny little box that looked like it would not be any fun to fly. And the tails you probably saw were the 747s. And the cool thing was yep. we made more money than them. Uh, <laughs> <Fair enough. laughs> they didn't they didn't like that. But my only job was to do airdrop. That was something that as contractors we did before the Air Force. It was direct support for the Army, trying to keep all of the Special Forces guys safe. So basically, if you could drop the equipment they needed to them inside their FOBs, their Ford operating base, they mm-hmm. didn't have to go outside the wire. They were less likely to get shot at or hurt or anything. So 
we flew these casas in formation, two and three ships, and we would drop in a 50 by 50 meter drop zone, which I know for you uh, fighter guys sounds huge, but you know, for an airdrop with a parachute, that's pretty small. Yeah, that's small. And so we would drop inside these fobs doing uh, low cost, low altitude airdrops. So we would drop these things at uh, anything except for fuel. We were dropping at 150 feet is when we would exit the airplane. And basically the parachute type looked like a black trash bag. And all it did was stabilize it enough to hit the ground. And then it had a bunch of uh, honeycomb cardboard that would take the impact of the drop. And if we were dropping fuel, like 55 gallon drums, we'd drop them at 75 feet. Flying this airplane, I look back on it. It was a lot of fun. I wouldn't do it now, but I have kids. Back then, I had, you know, I was alone and unafraid. No armor, no can't shoot back, and you know we were getting shot at a lot. But yeah, what uh, could do go these airdrops, and it was it was a blast. Yeah. That's all we did was airdrops. Wow. Hey, I I wanna I wanna just highlight something, um, because so, some some of our listeners probably won't understand, but you at the time were a traditional guardsman, right? Yes. Yes. And so this job contractor contractor job, that was your real job. The air guard was just a part-time job because you were a traditional guardsman. Correct. Yeah. Okay. So, I just want to set, make okay. sure that was plain as day. That airdrop job or the contractor job, I would do that 45 days on 45 days off. And my 45 days off, I was flying as much as I could at the guard. So basically I had two, part-time jobs or two full-time jobs. It was definitely a full-time job, but I was working six months at each job, basically. It was a lot of fun, but I was getting a lot of hours, which that was the big reason why I did it. You know, I kind of told my wife at the time, I was like, hey, this is the way for me to get to the airline even faster than the military is I'll be flying a thousand hours a year compared to, you know, three, 400. So when I did that, which looking back was the right decision for me, because uh, like you kind of hinted to earlier, I did all at 2011 and the first half of 2012. And then I went on some military orders, uh, flying the Herc again in 2012, right up to, I got off orders July 3rd and then July 4th, 2012, well, there I was, you know, that that's, this is the story. So, so this, uh, this, uh, this was a life changing day. It was, it was a pretty exciting day followed up by the worst day of my life. So my wife and I got married on July 4th. So it was a great, great day of our anniversary. We found out we were having a boy, uh, our first child. We found out we were having a boy that day. And then that led Same to the celebration. Did you talk about uh, on July 4th, 2012, you found out yep. she was pregnant? Found right, out or she was, that it was going to be a boy? It was going to be a boy. I'll be know? darned. And my okay. big thing was I wanted a boy. I got to carry on my last name. So like I said, best day of my life, but also the worst day of my life uh, at that time. I'm, I'm a patriot, as I know both of you are. And uh, so we believed in celebrating the 4th of July in style. Barbecue as Kansas City, as you know, Fig, in Kansas City, we were big in barbecue. Smoked a bunch of food up for the neighborhood. Some of the best in the world. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All threw money together. And we had a buddy who owned a fireworks stand. And so he got us fireworks at his rate. So we had this huge party, probably about 75 people to 100 people in our neighborhood here. Food. And then we did a fireworks display. And we thought... We were doing everything right. So we had, it was a dry year. So we made sure we turned our sprinklers on. We tried to spray down the roofs of our houses. We were one of the only counties around us that could actually shoot fireworks off. And, and just so we're clear on this, you guys were, you guys were, were going to, you guys were putting on a commercial fireworks display. That's, that's what we were doing. Yeah. It wasn't, it wasn't like a true, like the boards where you hit a button and it fires off, but it was, no, no. it was, yeah. It was but a you big were using display. those kind of fireworks. Yeah, it was it, a big, it's big stuff. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, basically, the biggest you can get to without needing PVC. 
uh, for your tubes. Um, so anyway, we had, uh, like I said, we prepped the yards and the houses to make sure we didn't catch any fires. And we ended up, uh, even the, the tubes, we screwed down to boards to two by four so they couldn't tip over, that kind of stuff. Had that stuff all in the middle of the street. Everybody was up against their houses. Nobody was close to this. And uh, basically, there was four of us. And one person would would do some kind of low firework shooting off like a fountain or something. And then one person would drop a mortar in, and then, then I was lighting it with a with an actual torch. It wasn't like I was sitting there with a little lighter or, pop, but, <laughs> you know. So it was a quick, and then we run away. We run back. Basically, if you think about most uh, U.S. neighborhoods, uh, you have a, a regular thirty to forty foot wide road. And then, you know, a five or six foot little piece of grass and then a, then a sidewalk after that. So we would run to the sidewalk. So we should be about 20 to 30 feet away from any fireworks that are going off after they're lit. So I remember it was a really hot day, like hot enough that if you do partake in alcoholic beverages, if it gets so hot, you're, you're really not in the mood to drink that much. Like we were drinking water for every like one drink. I was drinking two waters. It was that it was like, you know, 11 o'clock at night, still hundred degrees outside. It was hot. We were drinking, but not, not to the excessive, uh, as, as maybe some of my college days, but about 11 o'clock, I remember looking at our watch and, and talking to the other three guys were shooting these fireworks. I'm like, man, I'm, I'm tired of shooting these off. And they're like, yeah, man, we got to be done pretty soon, but we still had more than half the fireworks left, but we were like, well, we'll just do another half an hour, 45 minutes, and then we'll call it done. Be done by midnight. So we kept going. So did you guys uh, all chip in on this? This sounds we expensive. Did. We, we spent about. So like I said, we, we spent, I say only, we spent about $1,500 in fireworks, but we bought them at wholesale price because my buddy owned a fireworks uh-huh. stand. So it was more around like $3,500 to $4,000 worth of fireworks. It's, wow. I got a picture. It's ridiculous. So anyway, Get to it. Get yeah, to I'm, it. I'm getting to it. Get to it. So, <laughs> so here we go. So 11 o'clock, we talked about that. 11.23, we shoot off firework. I, I light it and I run away. And again, I told you the process of lighting off. And I get to the sidewalk and I turn around. And then as I turn around, a purple flash comes right towards me and it happened in like slow motion, right? It was slow enough that I could see this purple flash coming to me, but fast enough, I couldn't do anything about it. And it hit me directly in the right eye. And I remember I slammed my hand up to my eye and I was like, it's in my eye. My eye's on fire. And my buddies thought I was joking around at first. And they, then they realized I wasn't joking. And there was a little kiddie pool in my neighbor's yard and they pushed me in the pool. And I remember it was like, uh, the Graduate. Remember the movie The Graduate, where the kid goes in the pool, and yeah, sitting underneath, yeah, yeah. and the, the song's playing. Dustin like, Hoffman. I felt yeah. like that. Yeah. Dustin silence. Hoffman. Yeah. Sound, uh, yeah. Oh, that's right. Sound of so silence. So I remember, yeah. I remember going underneath that water and trying to open my eye, and it was in like in slow motion, and I could not open my eye, and I started freaking out, and to the point where, since I could open my eye, that's the only thing I was concentrating on. I didn't think about that I couldn't breathe when I was underneath the water. <laughs> so my buddies right. grabbed me and pulled me back out. They're like, are you okay? And I'm like, I was like, I can't open my eye. It's like, I can't see. I don't know what's going on. And uh, oh. so at that point, uh, that firework had hit me right in the right eye. And uh, my buddy threw me in his truck and he's like, well, where, do you, where should we take you? And I was like, take me, the, you know, just down in my neighborhood couple blocks we have an ambulance station i was like take me to the ambulance station and i remember everything was kind of slow motion they, they say you know whenever you have a, a traumatic injury something that kind of slows down and and you can kind of remember that yeah, time compression um, yeah and so i remember he gets in and he hits the gas and i at this time i didn't have any kids but but i was like hey slow down it's fourth of july there's kids it's like don't rush so i told him to slow down uh, even though i didn't know how bad my eye was so he, he slowed down. He took me to the ambulance station. I remember I walked in it and the ambulance was gone. 
<laughs> and I was like, I was like, oh man, you gotta be kidding of me. Of course. Uh, I walked back out to his truck and I, okay, I guess you gotta take me to the hospital. And as we start pulling out, the ambulance was pulling back in the parking lot. So I got up out of the truck and I knocked on the, on the window and I said, Hey, I just got hit in the, in the eye with a firework. Can you guys help me out? And they said, yeah, get in. So I got in the, the next thing I remember him saying is, Hey, because you've been drinking, cause they asked me a question. I've been drinking, of course. Yeah, sorry. Hey, yeah. I want to, I want to stop you. What's up? What's up? I, I want you to skip these kind of details oh, okay. Okay. and go right to the injuries. What okay. injuries did you sustain? Okay. So, um, so what ended up happening was I, uh, and in the coming days, uh, we, we didn't really know how bad it was. Um, it took, they knew that, that I had a cornea, that my cornea was burned, but they didn't know how mm. bad yet because of all of, uh, because of all the debris and stuff in my eye. So I had to get debris and everything else. But basically about three or four days later, they realized, uh, that I had a full thickness cornea burn, right? So there's basically like five layers of your cornea and all five layers were burnt. Again, they didn't know what that meant. They didn't know if they, they told me, he said, you might be able to see in, in a month or you may have no vision in it at all, or we might have to do surgery. They, they didn't know anything. So what about your eyelids? Uh, and my eyelid at, uh, was also burned. Uh, the, the upper lid was burned the worst. It basically about halfway and right in the middle had a big arch in it. So <clears> if I close my eye, you could still see my eyeball behind it. It was very significant. Yeah, it was very it significant was, injuries. I'm lucky. I'm lucky that's all that happened. I mean, because other people had these same injuries and, and uh, either lost, totally ruptured the globe of their eye, or you know, it popped the eyeball basically, Oof. or uh, or they've they died. You know, so I got I got pretty lucky. My eyes hurt listening to this. Do what? I know, right? My, my eyes hurt listening to this. Yes. So, uh. you know, the the only thing I could remember. The first thing I thought of was, I said, man, my career's over. I mean, I literally said it outside or out loud. I said, hey, my career's over. Um, Your flying career. Yeah. The other thing that I said, which was kind of funny, uh, this kind of goes back to that 2010 deployment. I had a buddy that uh, the power to go out since I was the brand new kid. I had to go. Uh, I had to go turn on. Anytime the power went out, I had to go reset the breaker. And basically their saying was, hey, fatty, I can't see. And that meant me go outside in the winter air, go to the breaker box and put the breaker back on. So I mean, one of the guys that was on my crew was there at the hospital that night. He, he walked, he finally gets in. I was like, I kept asking for him. And I don't know why it was so important to me, but I kept asking for him when he came in he goes, Hey buddy, how you doing? And I said, Hey, I can't see. And so to me, it was, it was hilarious to him. It wasn't so funny, but I thought it was just <laughs> funny, you know? Uh, so from there, I, I was at the guard every day. Uh, except for the weekends, you know, I, I love to fly the Herc and I wanted to upgrade as fast as possible. But when this happened, I didn't want anybody to know. And as, as you guys know, and as a military aviator, we never want our flight docs or anything to know about anything until we know what the heck's going on. Right. right. So mm -hmm. I didn't tell anybody. I mean, there was multiple reasons. Number one, I didn't know if I was gonna be able to see it again. Number two, I didn't want anybody to start looking into my medical records. Cause if I could see again, I didn't know if I could, I didn't want people to know right away until I could, until I could control the situation. And number three, I mean, it, it was a dark time in my life. I mean, you, you guys know as the aviator, if you can't fly, I mean, and, and we talked about this already is yeah. young kids. It's all we want to do. So it was a dark time in my life where I was like, you know what? I just need to be by myself. I mean, yeah. How many times do you, you know, you joke, yeah, I should be selling shoes. 
yep. <laughs> instead of doing this in the middle of the night with people shooting at me and yeah. And uh, and then when uh, your option is to sell shoes, I imagine it, it does get pretty dark. Go, yeah, yeah, I'd rather be good. having people shoot at me. It's uh, it's definitely not good. It was it probably not even five days, probably like July 9th, maybe. I got a knock on my door, and then there was Fig, my wife next door. He was he said, Where's Fatty? And she's like, Well, he's 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 okay. She's like, Well, what happened? He's like, What do you mean what happened? She wasn't gonna tell him. So anyway, he came in and I was on the couch. Uh, I was on a lot of pain meds, all bandaged up. Still didn't know exactly what, what was going on yet, but told him about it. He was my flight commander and my friend. And he's like, dude, we got to take care of you. We got to figure this out. Uh, he went to bat for me at that time. But but basically what kind of the ruling was is that since I was on orders on July 3rd and not on July 4th, uh, the military had no, they didn't care about it. Right. So to speak. They had no. Well, no financial no, care. Yeah. No, no commitment. Right. To that, to it at all, right? It was a very gray area in the regs that allowed me. Should I be able to allow it on base or not? And at the time, the commander was like, "Nope, you cannot come on base." But Fig went to fight for me and said, "You know what? He's doing all his other stuff." And, and it, at first, they they still said no. And then that brings us to the heritage room that, that Fig had mentioned. Right before this accident, I had got the heritage room approved to build our squadron bar. And so, like I said, that dark time in my life, I needed something to do. So what I started doing was riding in with some buddies to work, even though I couldn't get paid and I couldn't be there on military status. I went in and I built the bar during the day because I had nothing to do. I needed something to keep busy. So that's what I nice. did. And basically figs like, Hey, this dude's coming in every day using power tools and everything else, building a bar. Why are we not putting them on orders? And long story short, the guard did take care of me. You know, we talk about the guard being family and uh, they did, they took very good care of me for about five years, four or five years. I had 32 surgeries. I'm still as blind as I was day one. But at the best case, I mean, that's, that's the horrible thing, but, but realistically, all these surgeries I did, I mean, I had some awesome, awesome surgeries. I saw the best surgeons in the, and probably in the and world. And you're talking surgeries, not just cornea transplants, but yeah. also plastic surgeries to rebuild your eyelid. Your eyelid wouldn't stay closed at night. So they, they built a spring into it to yep. keep it shut at night yep. so that the cornea wouldn't dry out. I mean, we're talking, oh, wow. holy yeah. cow, this guy was yeah. under, under the knife yeah. a lot. Yeah, I had uh, stem cell surgeries. Like, took stem cells out of my dad's eye and then out of a cadaver and put them in mine. And at one point, I actually got to twenty forty vision out of my right eye, uh, which was ama- amazing because wow. I had zero. But like Fig said, my eye wouldn't stay shut when I sleep, and the cornea would dry out. So what they had to do was try to find a way to help help that muscle because it was so damaged. Keep my eyelid closed. Well, the spring was doing that job. They replaced my cornea with those stem cells. And I could see 2040, but the only way for me to see was to actually grab my eyelid and pull it open with my, with my fingers. So what they did then was adjust the the tension of that spring so that I could possibly open it up just enough to see, even though that did, the issue was at night when I was sleeping, it would, it would still open up too much enough to dry it out. So it was a lose, lose. Like either I could have a good cornea where I could see if I held my eye open with my hands or I could open my eye, but then I couldn't see because my cornea would dry out. So um, in the end, I tried to have the best of both worlds, which ended up being uh, my eye not, not being able to see. So my, uh, my cornea is totally fogged over again. Uh, I was put on a project for, for the Air Force, and I actually got some good experience in it, and it took care of me uh, for those five years. And then finally, talking to Fig and one of our other uh, flight docs, he said, hey, you know, you could fly for the civilian stuff. And I said, oh, yeah. And he told me how to do it. I said, okay. 
He said, but if you're going to do that, you need to have some proof that you know how to fly. And if you can start flying in civilian, we'll try to push for an exception of policy waiver for you to fly for the Air Force, uh, which had never been done. There's never uh-huh. been a monovision okay. uh, Air Force pilot before. Going back to that contracting company, even though Evergreen was gone, it got bought out by a different company. I, uh, I called that company and I said, hey, you know, I've been on <laughs> military slash medical leave since 2011. Uh, I got my class one medical. Can I come back? So I ended up getting a class one medical from something called a SOTA, uh, a statement of demonstrated ability. And basically right. uh, all you have to do is go fly with the FISDO and do everything you can do in a commercial check ride with your disability, which mine is one eye. So it was pretty easy. Just go tune the radios, point out some stuff on a chart, point out all of the visual stuff you'd see outside that match the chart and do some landings. Not, not a big deal. Literally from the time I started that process, the time I was back to flying was about three weeks. I took my first flight with Fig, his Cessna, and we went flying for about 45 minutes. And he said, dude, you're ready. And it had been five years since I'd flown. Wow. So I think total time we flew that day was about an hour and then uh, went back. That was like on a Monday or Tuesday. And I took my check ride with the FISDO on Friday. And the following Saturday, I was at training again with my old company that has now bought out by somebody else. And the following week, I was in Africa flying the Casa 212. How about that? That's uh, dangerous. Yeah. So, uh, so, so I got a, I, I got a couple questions here then because, right. wow, first of all, I'm impressed. That That is amazing. That is a challenge overcome, and that's inspirational. I got to say, tell you that right up front. But how? That's my first question. How? Because the way the human brain works is parallax for depth perception. How do you do your depth perception? So I You move your head around a lot or? Well, so kind of, but I think, I think a lot of it is because in the C-130 community, we fly with, with night vision goggles and you don't have no depth there. You don't have depth perception. So we already are used to flying with that. And, and now that I don't have depth perception, I I feel like that kind of made it easier for me. It's a nonstop NVG sortie every time you go flying. (laughs) It it is. (laughs) And I have to move my head just as much as well. Yeah. Right. You know, because right. you know, when you fly with night vision goggles, you're only like you're limited to like a 40 percent field of view. So yeah. <laughs> I'm limited to 50. So I got to keep moving my head. Yeah. So uh, And so you're doing it, you know, in your car and everything, too. So not necessarily in your car. Do you run into shit or miss shit or so, or do okay, you just get funny. or are you better at it? I mean, you know. <laughs> no, it's it's funny that you mentioned that. So uh, actually, the scariest thing I did right afterwards was try to drive. Uh, so I remember it was about probably a month after and I tried to drive and I was like, whoop, no, I'm not going to do that. That's not right. Not just dangerous. But again, your your body adjusts, your brain adjusts, and uh, and luckily for me, my depth perception is I feel like I'm closer to objects than I really am. Therefore, I'm super cautious because I think I'm going to hit it, but I've got probably feet still, which okay. is good. So I don't hit stuff to the point where I, I mean I've gotten now it's just it's like it's second nature to me now. I've taken my car to the track and everything else. It it doesn't okay. it really doesn't doesn't affect me anymore. Yeah. But, but that's uh, part of the challenge to overcome, right? To... Yeah. Okay. But it, it does take a while for your body to uh, to get used to that. And as a, as a civilian aviator in the FAR, it's, you have to wait six months for your eye to kind of stabilize before you're okay. able to get this waiver. So. All right. That's... So let's let's flash. Let's go forward a second. So you went from uh, doing the flying in Africa back to Afghanistan, and you were flying. So I went to fly the MC-12W, which is a King Air 350 with external tanks and it's a, it's an ISR mission. Yeah. Um, has a lot of sensors on it. Yeah. ISR is uh, 
stands for what? So we can explain. <laughs> well, you know what? I don't actually know what it. What, it's uh, in, it's it's, uh, <laughs> it's it's a it's well, intelligence surveillance it's, yeah, and it's reconnaissance, reconnaissance ISR. Yep. Yeah. yeah. So there's sensors on it. A lot of radios. There's a uh, a bunch of equipment in the back. There's a sensor operator, and then there's pilots. Maybe more than one sensor operator. You right? are Overwatch, basically, is what you are. Yeah. Um, so you're 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 watching things. The cool thing about that, it was a government. It was called a GoCo, right? So, uh, government-owned aircraft and then uh, commercial aviators. So we were uh, civilian pilots, but I was on a uh, Air Force contract. So this kind of gets to the first thing of the Air Force is signing off for me to be an aircraft commander for their airplanes. Do you see the irony here, repeat? Yeah. But they won't let you me You can't fly. touch a C-130. Yeah. He, they won't he's let me flying fly. combat missions in an Air Force-owned aircraft in Afghanistan in a combat zone. But they won't let him fly in the guard on the weekends. With one eye. And, yeah, yep. at home. But they won't let him fly <laughs> another Air Force-owned aircraft at home that he's trained in. So we we had your government at hard at work for you. <laughs> yeah. Well, because of that scenario and because he had been over there flying his ass off, we had now what I thought the perfect recipe to to, you know, start standing on people's desk and saying, What what is wrong with you people? What have you all lost your effing minds? Yeah. Nice. So to put the cherry on the top of that. So I did that for about two thousand hours. Uh, and then I got hired by it was actually the same company just a different sector of the company i got hired to ferry c-130s from afghanistan to portugal for their maintenance their depot level maintenance um again on an air force contract signed off by the air force to fly air force airplanes as an aircraft commander so now i'm able to fly the c-130 and the mc-12w as a contractor with one eye but as an aircraft commander, which is just like being in the Air Force. So it was a, the check rides, it's four mate check rides, which was exactly what we do in the, uh, in the Air Force. So we used all of that uh, to, for them to, to write the, the uh, exception of policy waiver yep. and, and the waiver. And, uh, Father had a big hand in that because he was working at the Guard Bureau slash Pentagon nice. at the okay. time. Yeah. It, all, it all kind of... Listen, we back. had a flight surgeon that uh, that was in our unit uh, who was well connected with the FAA and well connected with the Air Force, uh, the head Air Force surgeon, flight surgeon. I mean, we had all the people in all the right spots. So we had a strike while the iron was hot, and yeah, and we got and it actually done. it was kind of funny. So we had the guys that they knew. Then we had my buddy who I had put on orders to work for me on that program that I got assigned to when I was hurt. Uh, he ended up being the exec for the uh, general who had to sign my waiver. So he was able to walk my stuff around. And then that general who had to sign that waiver was actually my brother's old wing commander. So it was like the perfect storm <laughs> of, uh, nice. of guys that, that I needed to sign this waiver. And uh, again, uh, it had never, ever been done before. And everybody said, there's absolutely no way it's ever going to happen. No, it's not going to happen. No. No, yeah. you can't. You can't be an Air Force pilot with yeah. one eye. So, um, uh, when did you take your check ride in the C one hundred and thirty again? Because you had to go through the whole yeah. C one hundred and thirty school. So I again. got, I got uh, December eighteenth when I got the waiver. I went to training in April of twenty nineteen and took my check ride in. Uh, I think it was 
July, July or August of 2019. I think it was August. Yeah, August. I, August of 2019. Yeah. So seven years passed. Seven years. Wow. Seven years is, is what it was. Basically, it was almost seven years exactly. On that day that you passed your check ride in August 2019, you became the first ever monocular vision fully qualified Air Force pilot ever. Ever. Yep, that is, that is true. <laughs> that is true. And uh, and to my knowledge, I, I think some other guys have tried, but I think I'm still the only one. It took seven years, a lot of fighting by the right people. I had a lot of uh, right commanders and friends uh, and, and family in my corner. I mean, absolutely, like, couldn't That's have done awesome. it. Absolutely. Getting the right support. That's obviously yeah, the key. Support. That's awesome. Like I said, I was in a dark, dark place when this first happened. And if it wouldn't have been for my wife and, and Fig are, are probably the two most important people that I had uh, going for me. It was, you know. I can't take any credit for that, dude. Yeah, Here's, you say that. I, but. I just want to say this for all, for you, for repeat, and anybody that's listening to this podcast, there's something I I learned uh, about this guy and that uh, there's can't is not in his vocabulary. Nice. And I get the fact that it took, you know, almost seven years that that's the nature of government bureaucracy and how slowly it moves. And, but you mentioned that other people have tried since and they're having difficulty and that's just a problem. Once one guy has demonstrated it and the people have signed off right. and you've operated the airplane, come on, get a procedure in place and unscrew yourselves there. Get this fixed. There are people out there that are capable of doing the job. Yeah, you're exactly right. You know, I had a two, three-year waiver, and my waiver came up for renewal in in December, and they didn't they didn't approve it <laughs> because they said Say it was it too high so. of a risk for is me to fly something? an Air Force airplane. Is that and, something? Yeah, and, at and he'd point, he'd already been to combat. <laughs> at this point, I'd already deployed. Actually, hold on a second. This gets a little better. Repeat. Not only he did he deploy to combat. As a C-130 aircraft commander, my youngest son was on his crew. Yeah, yeah. That's why I didn't know if you want me to mention or not. But nice. it yeah, was okay. that was a very personal thing for me. I mean, it was awesome, very rewarding. That was the most rewarding part of the deployment was taking your son on my crew. But the fact is, I'd done everything, had no incidents, and then they're like, "Yeah, it's too dangerous, too much of a high risk," and it took another five months to get that waiver. These guys are fucking morons, man. And and at this point, prior oh, to I had, I had an instructor school dates prior to trying to get this waiver renewed. And we had to push them month by month back for five months. And so so then if they weren't setting me up for failure, I had basically when I finally got the waiver, I had five flights before I went to instructor school. So it was four <laughs> flights and a check ride. But everything went good. Uh, I'm now the Air Force's only monovision instructor pilot. So. Oh. That's crazy. Well, I, I'm I am super thrilled to hear that story, though. That is so inspirational and success through perseverance in the face of overwhelming odds. And it sounds like a great great moronity. Is that a word? More moron moronity. <laughs> well, uh, fight, it it fighting it, yeah. yeah, right. <laughs> sounds good to me. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's inspiring. Very cool. I am. Uh, I'm blown away by that story. I. I so it gets there's a little icing on the cake for you, repeat. Oh, nice. Okay, gets it gets better. So he's he's so at your son it was on his about crew. a month after he he became the first ever Air Force 
binocular vision pilot. He had an interview at the airline that I work for. Actually, I had it before I went. April. Really? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I got hired in April. I started the month after. And so I told him if he, if he, I made a deal with him that if he had gotten hired at this airline that I was flying at and he ended up flying the same aircraft I was on, I would do his OE. Oh, there you go. And so we did. And I told him to bring <laughs> an extra eye patch for me. And so we, <laughs> we, we stood outside the airplane with our, with our eye patches on. Of course, I wore it over the opposite eye that he had his eye patch on. Right. And you should have seen the looks that we got when the people got <laughs> off. <laughs> oh, it was great. You know, did did you walk around somebody's seeing eye dog at, uh, during, during you know, the turn? It, it's kind of funny because <laughs> since it's Halloween time frame, you always see that pilot, you know, the, the meme yeah. with the pilot with the, the stick. Yeah, and, I was like, and the oh, yeah, C&I dog, that. and the, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I can do that. But yeah, it was uh, that was that was probably one of the best memories I had in my life. Was uh, was was finishing my OE with Fig, and uh, it came full circle, you know, because yeah. this was years prior. He said, "Hey, if I ever do, if you ever get here, I'm gonna wear this patch on the opposite eye as you." And he's like, "Did you bring my patch?" And I'm like, "Here you go." And I think the important thing for people to hear is the amount of scrutiny that you underwent this is oh not my gosh you know it, it, yeah you talk about i mean talking about being under a microscope this guy yeah. has and the, the tubes that he jumped through to get back to where he's at now it's a testament to your perseverance character i don't know throw out a couple more uh right on. you know absolutely right that is, and uh, I mean, talk about setting an example for his sons and the rest of the squadron, and anybody in the aviation community that has a, a hardship or a, ends up with. Uh, it doesn't even have to be the aviation community. Fit. No, you're absolutely uh, right. No, right, you know, this is uh, this goes back to the the other shows we've had that have had a couple inspirational stories on there. When when you think that you're done and and things don't look very hopeful. Uh, a little perseverance goes a long way. Well, I should say that yeah. a lot of perseverance goes a long <laughs> way um, yeah. because I know it wasn't a little perseverance that got you there. But, well, uh, you know, it's been a lot. Yeah. And what's funny is it, it actually, you know, I, I didn't even think about this till later on, like probably about a year ago. I was also, I've set a couple of different records for the Air Force for eye stuff and waivers. For the Air National Guard, they had never, ever, sent a pilot to pilot training that didn't have their wings. If they didn't have 20, it was 2070 vision correctable 2020. And I had 2,400. So I was the first Air National Guard non-rated pilot to be sent to pilot training that had PRK. So I am done setting waivers for the, uh, for the Air Force and I stuff. <laughs> right. So. Good on you. No. <laughs> so, I mean, it started off from the very beginning. Like I said, it's, yeah. you know, you talk about perseverance. That, that there's only so much a person can do. And that's what... I know that everybody talks about this. You got to have a good support system. I mean, family and friends, and then especially military, you have commanders that are that are willing to step to do what's right. Maybe it may not be the normal or the easy thing to do, but they got to do what's right. So. It's a great story, buddy, and I, and I appreciate you for sharing that. It is a great story. Thank you indeed. And I hope uh, there are people out there who hear that and go, "Oh, maybe maybe it isn't time to give up yet." Then I'll, I will keep going. If it's your dream, you got to do it. That's period. That's what it is. Period dot. Yep. Well, we've been talking for a while. 
Yeah, Holy I think shit. it's probably time to to, to wind this thing up. Uh, <laughs> let me start by saying, Dave Fatty, thank you for your service and thank you for sticking to it when it seemed pretty dark and you didn't think that that was going to be something that was going to pay dividends. You stuck with it anyway. It looks like it did, and hopefully you've broken a uh, broken a glass ceiling or two for someone else coming behind you. I sure hope so. Well, that's about all the time we have for today's show, so I'm going to go ahead and wrap it up here. I want to first take the opportunity to thank you for spending your time with us. We know there are millions of shows out there that you have to choose from, and the fact that you've chosen ours is a great honor and very humbling to us, so thank you. One other thing you could do for us is to please continue to do what you have been doing and helping our show grow by going to Apple Podcasts app and subscribing there if you happen to have an iOS device or a Mac device. Uh, if you're on Windows, then you can find us on all other manner of podcasting applications. We're on Spotify, we're on Pandora, we're on iHeart, we are on Stitcher, and anywhere that you can find a podcast, we're there. So go search for So There I Was podcast, and you'll find Fig and Repeat. If you'd like to give us feedback, we would certainly appreciate it, or if you have any questions, you can reach us by email. First is fig at so there I was dot us or repeat at so there I was dot us repeat spelled R E P E T E. You can follow us on Facebook at so there I was dot us slash Facebook or on Twitter at so there I was dot us slash Twitter. Also, I want to take just a moment to thank our sponsor, Robin's dot com. She will work with you to create a custom gift that is very, very elegant and shows that you've put a lot of thought and effort into getting the perfect gift for someone who has everything and you don't know what to get them. She has custom laser etched slate coasters. Mine have some aircraft instruments and my airplane's tail number on it. Fig has the squadron logo, VMA-223 squadron logo and his call sign on it and the call sign of all the members of his family. So work with Robin at robinsbirdbraindesigns.com and she will help you get a military unit logo, airplane instruments, any other organization with which you're associated and customize that for you. They are absolutely gorgeous. You can go to the sponsors page on so there I was us and see an example of what that coaster looks like. The link to Robin's site is there, robinsbirdbraindesigns.com. So thank you for listening. We'll see you next week. In the meantime, stay safe and check six. I tried a foresight lock and got an FCR fail. Then Lee turned into the sun like he does every fucking time. Oh, son of a bitch. Dude's blind. I'm here today to talk to you about a disease that's becoming more and more widespread as the season goes on, playoff ineligibility. In the past, cures for this condition have included everything from accelerated drinking schedules to trying to pay attention to hockey. But I'm proposing something much more radical, a healthy dose of vitamin NFC East. Are you tired of losing your division just because everyone else is trying too hard? Can you count the number of good defensive players on your team on one hand? And is that hand missing fingers because of a firework accident?